0: Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you're listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at Schwepp.net. Episode 115, The Esoteric Plotinus Part 1, Philosophic Silence. It will be evident to those who've been listening to our series on Plotinus so far, that Plotinus has an important role in the development of later Western esotericism. If this isn't clear already, it will certainly become clear as the podcast progresses. And we look at the greats of later philosophic Platonism, all of whom owe a huge debt to Plotinus even when they want to disagree with him, but also at crucial thinkers in the Christian tradition like Augustine, whom we won't be devoting too much attention to, and Pseudo-Dionysius, to whom we shall be devoting really outrageous amounts of attention. And crucial thinkers in the Islamicate tradition like Al-Farabi and Ibn Sina whose thought would be inconceivable without that of Plotinus, even if they thought that the Plotinus they were reading was Aristotle. See episode 39 of the podcast for an introduction to the theology of Aristotle, one of the most important medieval philosophic texts, which happens to have been an Arabic selection from the Enneads traveling under the name of Aristotle. In this episode, we're going to focus on Plotinus himself and the uses to which he puts the esoteric in his writings. This is not esotericism, then, the long durée study of something called Western esotericism, but the esoteric as a kind of speech act or gesture, the evocation of secrecy and silence in the context of higher wisdom. But actually, we're not just going to look at the esoteric in Plotinus. We're going to look at two different sources, Porphyry's life of Plotinus, and then the Enneads themselves. In other words, we're going to look at the way Porphyry depicts Plotinus as exercising esotericism or the esoteric and then elements of the esoteric that we actually find in Plotinus, the images that arise from these two different sources are not entirely the same as we shall see. So first we want to consider the ways in which Porphyry depicts Plotinus as an esoteric sage. We'll want to look at his depiction of Plotinus's life, being acutely aware of Porphyry's agenda and the culture of the esoteric that he subscribed to. In depicting his master. We shall then turn to Plotinus himself, as he writes the esoteric in the Enneads, the degree to which Plotinus thought of himself as an esoteric author or teacher, that is, a writer who conceals what he writes, or a teacher who conceals while he teaches. We shall look at the kinds of tropes of the Platonist esoteric that Plotinus drew on, and we shall see that he did make some very interesting use of, for example, traditional religious materials and an esoteric wisdom lineage. And in doing this, we want to look at his art of esoteric reading, with which he interrogated traditional religious materials, be they poems, myths, temple architecture, but also Plato and other philosophic authorities, to see the way he puts the esoteric into practice. So let's get to it. Porphyry's depiction of Plotinus and Platonist philosophic silence. Porphyry depicts Plotinus as, in certain senses, A practitioner of serious social esotericism. We discussed the vow of silence story in episode 111. Plotinus, along with two other students of Ammonius Saccas, one called Herennius and one called Origen, whom some say is our Origen, Origen the great father of orthodox esoteric Platonist Christianity, and who others posit is an otherwise unknown philosopher more on that in a special episode for serious lovers of this insoluble debate. So these three made a pact not to reveal the teachings of Ammonius. We should note in passing that Dennis O'Brien has suggested that the Kai Plotino in our text was added by a, quote, somnolent or inventive scribe, end of quote, and that the oath actually only involved Origen and Herennius. Nevertheless, he does think that Plotinus did treat certain of Ammonius's doctrines as secret or as only to be revealed to a privileged few. anyway, so it's a bit of a question why he thinks this is an addition to the text. Anyhow, O'Brien suggests that the doctrines in question, the Ammonian esoteric teachings, were doctrines to do with matter. Uh, maybe, but while this is an intriguing suggestion, we don't really have enough evidence to go on. Despite the intense scrutiny given to every scrap of evidence about Ammonius in our sources, we really can't say that much about the man. So assuming that Porphyry's text isn't corrupt, and that Plotinus was part of this vow to keep the doctrines, uh, whatever they were, secret, and did break the vow, this puts us in an interesting bind. Doesn't this make Plotinus kind of a defiler of the mysteries? A betrayer of Ammonius's trust? Hmm... Before we address that question, let's look at another comment of Porphyry's that Plotinus was reluctant to write down his thought. Now, as we know, Plato, especially in the Phaedrus, takes a strong stance that the written word is problematic, in that, among other things, it puts information out there into the world where the author can no longer control it, so that uh, any old doofus can get a hold of it. This is a major trope of the Platonic written esoteric. If the words can be read by just anyone, they can be read by the unphilosophic masses, and then who knows what might happen. Now, the obvious problem of writing about why writing is a bad idea may jump out at our gentle listeners at this point. But for now, we'll just reiterate the point that we made in episode 25 of the podcast, say that Plato was a trickster and does stuff like this, and then move on. Now, Porphyry tells us that Plotinus was initially reluctant to publish but then egged on by his students, he did anyway. And we know that once he got started, he went for it because the Enneads are one of the most heavy-duty and extensive philosophical ouvres surviving from antiquity. So again, what gives? While Porphyry doesn't tell us why exactly Plotinus was reluctant to publish his thought, we might want to assume either that it was because of some Platonist philosophic elitism and critique of the written word along the lines laid out in the Phydris, roughly speaking. Don't publish the inner mysteries of philosophy because then morons may get a hold of them and read them. As for Plotinus's teaching activity, this can then be understood as a perpetuation of the oral teacher-student relationship valorized by Plato. This is how you do philosophy. You engage in discourse. It's a kind of soul-to-soul connection between teacher and student. This is what Socrates was always doing, right? So that is no problem. That doesn't really break the tropes of secrecy. Or we might see it as springing from a similar motive to Plotinus's refusal to have his portrait done, which we talked about in an earlier episode, a kind of denial that making perishable memorials in the material world is even worthwhile. So we might want to think Plotinus doesn't want to write his works down because why would you create works of art or statues or anything else when your true home is the noetic world, basically. Or we might just think, Plotinus couldn't be bothered with writing. We don't know, actually, what the motives were. And even if Porphyry gave us a motive, we'd have reason to think that this was Porphyry's interpretation of Plotinus' motives, rather than necessarily what Plotinus himself really thought. Here's a point I'd like to make about both of these anecdotes. As Nicholas Banner has described, we can identify a kind of culture of tropes of secrecy and silence within Platonist philosophy, which Banner calls philosophic silence, which is not silence, but rather a collection of speech acts and gestures which evoke silence of secrecy in public without really keeping secrets, or without necessarily keeping them at any rate. That this was a kind of stylistic norm for Platonists, right? In other words, we need not look at these incidents as depicted by Porphyry, as necessarily representing exactly what happened in Plotinus' life. They may simply be more examples of the way in which Porphyry is concerned to portray Plotinus as an elite Platonist sage. Plotinus, of course, had a vow to keep certain teaching secrets, and of course was reluctant to publish. This is how Platonist sages act. Just like when he traveled to the east in the train of the Emperor Gordian, It was, of course, because he wished to study the wisdom of the Oriental sages firsthand. As with the paradox of Plato's Phaedrus telling us in written form why it's a bad idea to write stuff down, we need not expect from Porphyry consistency, real secrecy, or a real thinking through of the fact that, for instance, the Enneads would seem to be a betrayal of a vow to Ammonius, if what Porphyry tells us is true. I don't think anyone ever took the time to berate Plotinus for his revelation of these secrets, right? Whatever they might have been. But by making Plotinus's work out to contain revealed secrets, Porphyry is making it into esoteric knowledge. So I would argue that if we use this model of philosophic silence, it helps us understand the kind of positioning Porphyry is doing of Plotinus. It's not that all these uh, anecdotes are supposed to paint a picture of a kind of Logically cohesive programmatic esotericism on Plotinus's part. What they're meant to do is just flag to the reader in numerous different ways that Plotinus's wisdom is esoteric knowledge. The Enneads are esoteric knowledge. So, whether or not Plotinus himself adhered to all these tropes of Platonist philosophic silence in his own life, and he might have done. Let's just say that. He too, just like Porphyry, was heir to the same tradition of esoteric themes, which you might want to call philosophic silence, we would expect Porphyry to depict him as doing so. And we shouldn't necessarily treat these episodes as they're depicted as being exactly what happened for that reason. There are kind of tropological expectations that Porphyry is trying to fulfill. So did Plotinus really travel to the East with the Emperor Gordian? Probably. I don't see why not. And it doesn't seem likely Porphyry would just make that up from whole cloth. Did he really go east with the Emperor Gordian as part of a quest for Eastern philosophic wisdom? Well, I'm sure he was curious about Eastern philosophic wisdom, maybe. But if we stop and think about it, is someone who's part of a military campaign by an invading army ever conceivably going to have a chance to chat about the initiatory secrets of the local philosophy with the local philosophers. I mean, think about the logistics of that. You don't speak the language, and you're here invading the country, and you're just going to stop and have a philosophic chat with some Persian Magoi or whatever. It makes perfect sense tropologically, but no sense at all from a practical point of view, it seems to me. I think lots of other incidents in the life of Plotinus should be read this way as well, based on Probably real events, most of which Porphyry has heard about rather than been present for, we should remember, but presented so as to emphasize Plotinus's access to privileged wisdom. So a lot of ink has been spilled trying to show exactly what the secret teachings of Ammonius were, or to explain this vow of silence and its subsequent betrayal. But this might just be um, looking in the wrong direction. We can't really know what happened here as we have nothing to go on except Porphyry's account. But what we can say for sure is that this stance of philosophic elite reserve on the part of Plotinus was sort of the normal decorum for a Platonist philosopher, especially one who's being depicted by Porphyry as the Platonist philosopher of his era. We can think of it as like part of good manners, as part of the what's expected of you. So we would expect to find it or things like it in Porphyry's life of Plotinus, regardless of whether or not Plotinus had esoteric teachings which he hesitated to put into writing or not, and so on and so forth. Now, let's turn to the esoteric Plotinus. Does Plotinus come across as a philosophic elitist in the Enneads, unmediated by Porphyry's commentary? Yes and no. He does quote, to take one example, Plato's Socrates in the Republic, on how the many— will never become philosophical. It would be impossible. He casts a certain amount of scorn on certain philosophical positions, materialism in various forms, for example. Uh, He often won't even bother refuting the Epicurean positions on a given point because he thinks of them as just not worth refuting because they're just so obviously wrong. And he does think that there's a quasi-perennial tradition of truth, going back to Pythagoras and Phoresides in philosophy, but also including ancient priests and nomothetes, which go back further than Pythagoras and Foresides. And the way that he reads these for philosophic hidden wisdom makes it clear that they, these ancient nomothetes and so on express themselves esoterically. Now, our special episode, Was Plotinus a Platonist? goes into details on the lineage he constructs for his school of thought. Plotinus also comes across as especially scornful and elitist in one particular tractate, against the Gnostics. Here he is seriously dismissive of a whole range of things, from wrong-headed metaphysics to philosophical deportment, which he feels the Gnostics get wrong. We shall discuss this particular text in a series of upcoming episodes on Sethian Gnosticism and its relation to Plotinus, so we won't get into it much here. Now let's have a look at the ways in which Plotinus constructs his esoteric wisdom lineage, and more importantly, the ways in which he interrogates it. As I mentioned, we already looked at this material in some detail in our special episode on the kind of terminology we might want to use to discuss Platonism and related currents in antiquity, but it's worth going over some of the same material again here for the light it casts on Plotinus's esoteric reading methodologies. Just to restate what we mean by esoteric reading, because that's kind of a funny term that the Schwepp uses that no one else uses, to read esoterically is to read a text under the assumption that the author was writing esoterically, which usually means in an ancient Greek context that the writer used enigma or similar tropes of discourse so that a deeper meaning lay hidden beneath the surface meaning of their text. Enigmata are thus secrets hidden in plain sight, as only the possessor of the hermeneutical keys will be able to find the true, deeper meaning. So, how does Plotinus read esoterically? Let's look at the tradition he constructs and how he interrogates it. So, first of all, non philosophic ancient wisdom in Plotinus. The references to belief in ancient sages, lawsgivers, and theologians that we've seen among the Middle Platonists in earlier episodes are helpful in contextualizing the Enneads, where we find similar beliefs but often implicit in forming Platinian discourse. Uh, Plotinus often reads traditional stories from Hellenic mythology, as well as the ritual heritage of the mystery cults, as containing hidden philosophic truths. He follows Platonic and Platonist precedent in referring to logoi, ancient teachings, I guess you'd say, as sources of truth to be discussed alongside the later contributions of philosophers. And all of these institutions in Plotinus's, in the earlier perennialists hide esoteric philosophic doctrines that were concealed by their wise founders from the unlettered and unphilosophic masses. We find occasional direct references scattered throughout the Enneads to the sages who hid messages in the institutions which they founded. Some of these sages are theologoi, which, filling out the few brief references in Plotinus with what we have seen in Plutarch, and others we may understand as proto-philosophic religious founder figures or epic poets. While Homer and Hesiod are not explicitly called theologoi in the Enneads, Homer's presence in particular is notable as one of Plotinus's favorite sources. He quotes Homer a lot, and often in the the context of extracting a little nugget of philosophic wisdom from him. Theologoi are mentioned in one passage alongside priests Hieron. Both understood as having relevant opinions on philosophical matters. It's unclear where the priests end and the theologians begin, but Sophoi, Theologoi, and Hieres, taken together, are undoubtedly a kind of ancient class of religious specialists with access to the perennial wisdom and an interest in hiding its truths within religious institutions, such as the initiatic rituals of mystery cults, and even in cultic architecture. So, Traditional temples are sometimes read by Plotinus' allegories, for example, of the relationship between the world of soul and the world of nous, or the world of nous and the one itself. Plotinus rarely emphasizes barbarian wisdom per se, but certain passages make it clear that he at least held the Egyptians in high esteem, and he was an Egyptian, so this shouldn't surprise us. Plotinus discusses how the Egyptian sages, Hoi Aguption Sophoi, use their hieroglyphics to illustrate the instantaneous Non discursive nature of nous. And his intriguing reference to the ancient sages' art of insoling statues is most likely a reference to Egyptians as well. This latter passage, which is made without any metaphorical intent, but rather cited as a historical example illustrating the current topic of discussion, the working of universal sympathia and its effects on seemingly inanimate objects, along with the famous incident of the seance in the Isaeum where Plotinus's guardian Daimon was conjured to visible appearance by a visiting Egyptian priest, served to remind us that Plotinus had a matter-of-fact belief in the wisdom and even the spiritual power of at least one barbarian nation. Although his pre-philosophic lineage, aside from these references to Egypt, is remarkably Hellenic when we compare it with any other extant Platonist perennialist. Plotinus really wasn't a a wise barbarian's guy. He just wasn't. He's looking for truth hidden within a Hellenic cultural tradition. He really is. Now, let's look in more detail at how Plotinus reads his wisdom tradition. As we discussed in the context of many Middle Platonists in the podcast so far, the esoteric reading of myth and mystery in a Platonist perennialist style brings religion into the fold of philosophy, allowing it to be mined as a source for potential philosophic truth, and used as a source of authority. As with the Middle Platonists, Plotinus employs the figure of enigma, mainly to interrogate Hellenic myths for secret doctrines. To take one example among many, Kronos, wisest of the gods, kept back within himself all that he begat. This is read as an enigma for the self-sufficiency of nous, and the fact that it contains the forms and noetic gods. Now if you want to um, think about the sort of Hesiodic theogony and the story of the Titans being overthrown by the Olympians and all that kind of stuff. This is actually a really elegant and beautiful interpretation, but I'll leave it there and people can look in the notes to this episode and find the reference and go check it out in Plotinus. This passage builds up to the famous affirmation of the antiquity of Plotinus's and Plato's school of thought, cited in an earlier episode where Plotinus says, I'm just an exegete. Of the same tradition that Plato was one member of, illustrating the way mythological discourse could be drawn into philosophic discourse to reinforce its antiquity and authority. We see similar interpretive strategies applied by Plotinus to cultic rituals. Now, what about the properly philosophic tradition for Plotinus? Well, we dealt with this in some detail in the special episode alluded to earlier, but the basic format. Is that Plotinus refers to the ancients, hoipalaioi or hoi Palai, as a source of pretty much unimpeachable philosophic truth. This is a tradition including Pythagoras and Pherecedes of Syros, they're mentioned as the beginners of it, including Parmenides, Empedocles, Plato, and, uncomfortably but undeniably, Aristotle. Although Aristotle does come in for serious criticism in Plotinus vis a vis doctrines, for example, Plotinus's long critique of the categories, which is a sustained dismantling of Aristotle's theory, essentially, it's a fascinating fact that no, and, and this doesn't seem to really come in for that much notice, but nowhere in Plotinus do we find the words Aristotle is wrong or anything equivalent to that. So there's always a nuancing of his message in the direction of the right doctrine. He'd much rather misread Aristotle on purpose to make him right, rather than just say, this is just wrong. Now, Plato is of course cited thousands of times in Plotinus, though not very often by name. Usually he's simply actually, if he's referred to at all, he's referred to as the ancients, right? So the ancients tell us that the soul is immortal. And it's like, he's clearly referring to Plato. Now, Plato too is never wrong explicitly, but we also find Plotinus Surprisingly often nudging Plato in the right direction. So, part of the way in which he's able to do this is through esoteric reading of Plato. And we're going to see that in just a moment. A couple examples of that in action. Interestingly, Plato's myths are seemingly treated no differently from mythic materials gathered from other sources by Plotinus. The story of the two Aphrodites from Plato's Symposium is read as an enigma for the fact that every soul is Aphrodite because of its innate love of the good. The intricacies of characterization and the myth's position in the dialogue of Plato are completely ignored. Since the earlier accounts of Eros in Plato's Symposium are presented by Plato as having been trumped by Socrates's later account of the teachings of Diotima, you might think that this earlier myth would seem kind of a strange source of wisdom for Plotinus. Plato read esoterically, however, is expected to express wisdom and truth at every stage of the dialogue, right? So even the earlier to Aphrodite's story is a place which is going to express Platonist truths to the fullest. So his reading frees the myth from its dialogic context, just as he frees traditional stories from their religious context. The creation myth of the Timaeus is also read enigmatically, and elsewhere another passage from the Timaeus is quoted anonymously as, quote, esoterically and divinely said. The word divinely, theos, emphasizes the religious register of the passage cited, situating Plato's words among the other sources of truth hidden in myth, as inspired wisdom rather than reasoned knowledge per se. Now, an interesting development of this methodology first appears in Plotinus. He applies enigmatic and other esoteric modes of reading not only to the mythical passages in Plato, which has been done already, but to Plato's dialectic. To the Middle Platonists, as we've seen, philosophers were philosophers and sages were sages, more or less, each with an appropriate reading methodology. Uh, The figure of Pythagoras is often a bit of a sage and a bit of a philosopher. He's the gray area, but generally speaking you read Sophoi and Philosophoi very differently. Plotinus applies the methodology of reading the Sophoi to the Philosophoi, sometimes, which I think is an early example of a trend in later Platonism of increasingly dovetailing the two wisdom traditions into one, and correspondingly of swapping methodologies between them. At Ennead 6.8, 1914, Discussing the nature of the first principle in a long apophatic passage, Plotinus cites the pekina usias, the beyond being or beyond essence of Plato's Republic, saying that perhaps we should consider that the ancients said beyond being as an enigma, di aenixeus to be understood as follows. What follows naturally is a distinctly Plotinian interpretation. Um, it's not the form of the good anymore, which Plato read literally, would seem to say, but the good, the one. In another passage, Plotinus discusses the nature of Eros and Aphrodite in a mythic philosophic discourse drawing on Plato's Symposium and on traditional cultic customs. The two sources of mythology are interwoven to such a degree that when Plotinus tells the reader that, for this reason, they said that she, that's Plato's heavenly Aphrodite, was motherless, hiding their true meaning, it's unclear whether Plato or some unnamed theologic forefathers are meant. In both of these passages, the line between philosopher and sage is becoming very blurry indeed. One passage of Plotinus fully breaks down the barriers between Platonic myth and Platonic logos. At 6.2, 2.13, Plato speaks enigmatically, enigmenos, of the way in which the nous Sees the forms in The Complete Living Creature, a reference to the mythologizing discourse of the Timaeus. But slightly further on in the discussion, he quotes the Parmenides of Plato, the least mythological of Plato's dialogues, as also containing Platonic enigma, eniktomenos ho Platon. As far as I can see, this passage is the first surviving use of enigma, to refer to an attributed philosophic text in a non-mythological register, and I warmly welcome anyone who's found an earlier example of this to let me know, because I may well be wrong here. I wouldn't be surprised if we had something like this in Philo, but I haven't been able to find it. So the importance lies in the light that this casts on the assumptions which lie behind the move on Plotinus's part. These should, I think, be understood in the context of the absorption and adaptation of religious materials by Platonism as with his characterization of philosophers as priests plotinus's reading of platonic myth as myths simpliciter just just myths not separated from traditional bodies of myths at large and even of platonic dialectic as enigma is different from what we've seen in middle platonism this trend in, in plotinus can usefully be seen as part of the broad trend In late Platonism toward a fuller unification of elements considered religious in modern terms with those considered philosophic. In the context of late antiquity, such a consolidation of sources of truth, of course, also represented a further raising of the stakes of authority. Late Platonism could boast increasingly not only a lineage including the most profound philosophers, but also a kind of revealed wisdom encoded in Hellenic religious culture as a whole. In Plotinus, we see these two traditions in the process of fusing, a process which would be taken much further by Porphyry, Iamblichus, and Proclus, and put into political practice by Julian, all of which we will be discussing in the course of the podcast. So there we have some notes on how Plotinus constructs ancient wisdom and the ways in which he finds the truths hidden within it. His reading of Plato's Parmenides as an enigma is very notable and seems to have escaped the notice of scholars. Also notable is the very Hellenic character of this lineage we've laid out. We see, aside from one or perhaps two references to the Egyptians, not a single wise barbarian in Plotinus, but ancient Hellenic sources of authority like nomothetes, theologoi, and even priests, whom Plotinus seems to be rethinking as high level philosophic initiates with esoteric wisdom a move also found in the earlier Stoic esoteric theorists like Cornutus and Hyramon, whom we discussed in episode 44. We can note another point here which may or may not be significant, but which is at least worth mentioning because seemingly no scholar has noticed it. Plotinus presents all these sources of wisdom, religious and philosophic, usually without naming names under the rubric of general terms like the ancient sages or just the ancients, but in one place he insists specifically on the Hellenes this is two 2.9 against the Gnostics. When we get to those delightful Gnostics in a few episodes time, we may discover some of the dynamics of cultural identity and polemic lying behind this one-off reference to Greeks and their school of thought by Plotinus. Now, in terms of keeping the secret, Plotinus does most of his real literary hiding and revealing, his real literary esotericism, Not in the context of this sort of lineage um, and esoteric reading material, but in the context of his amazing deployment of apophatic language. Most of the secret in Plotinus, in fact, is the self-hiding secret of the ineffable, which he couldn't reveal even if he wanted to, but he can certainly spend many treatises explaining the contours of that inability to reveal in great depth and detail. But Plotinus's use of the apophatic and the self-hiding secret is so original and achieves such incredible depths that he is maybe the greatest apophatic writer of antiquity. So we'll devote part two of this episode just to that theme. However, before we do that, uh, we're going to make another little swerve. And having looked at Plotinus and the question of ritual in his thought and in his life, we want to have uh, another look at Plotinus in engagement with an occult science of antiquity. I refer, of course, to astrology, and join us next time as we discuss, with the expert help of Marilyn Lawrence, Plotinus on Astrology. Until then, stay like the wisdom of the ancient nomothetes, and stay esoteric.